Paul's been talking about structure and polity and, and uh, the leaders of the church. In fact, in chapter 3, he talks specifically about the role of pastors and then deacons, and uh, Brady talked very well through that. And then he, Paul gets us to this, these, first, these last few verses in chapter 3. Um, he kind of takes a little pit stop, and he talks more specifically about the gospel and about the importance of it in the life of the local church. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bible, turn there. Let's read the text together, and then we'll jump in a little bit. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Um, Paul is talking about a mystery. Of, he calls it, in, in fact, the title of the, the message. Many of your Bibles may have the little subtitle that says the mystery of godliness. It's the gospel, really, in six lines of text. And um, he calls it a mystery because it's probably something we're never really going to truly understand until we get to be uh, with God one day. Look at this heavenly. I love it. Um, I I was thinking about when I was putting this together, um, this idea of mysteries. I, I grew up watching mystery stories and and stuff with my mom some of you movie uh, tv shows like diagnosis murder uh, some of the old tv shows that uh, were out um, there's still mysteries are still a big deal today I loved reading Sherlock Holmes and Hardy Boys and some of the things that I was just kind of ate that up my sister and I Katie hates it when she comes over and we play these little uh, mystery games where we try to solve murders and things and it's kind of ridiculous but we do it and it's fun and uh, so I, I always try to solve who did it before the story tells us who did it, right? Well, that's, that's the goal, and I've always loved to do those kind of things. But at the end of the day, it's really just an entertainment uh, way to, to kind of set our, our minds aside and just enjoy a good story. Uh, but I think what Paul's trying to say here, if, if you notice, he says specifically for those who ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So he's talking to a specific group of people, and as we get into the message this morning, one thing that I want to make sure we, that we understand is that this is not something that we put our minds aside on and that we just kind of sort of get. That as Christians, we have a responsibility to understand the truth of the gospel and that it's presented here by Paul in six little lines of text. And so I just want us to kind of focus on that and, and take seriously the importance that we have as Christians and a local church to hold high the gospel in all that we do. Um, so with that in mind, we give an aim every morning, every message, and uh, so we've got one this morning as well. It says this, the church is set apart by the truth of the gospel. The church is set apart by the truth of the gospel. We're going to split the message up into two parts, talk about the church, and then we'll talk about the mystery that Paul lays out. Um, so if you'll listen quickly, um, I'll go as fast as I can. Um, let's start with point number one. Being a part of the church is more than your attendance on Sunday mornings. Um, he's talking to the household of God, the, uh, the church of the living God. He's talking to Christians. 
So I think for us to invest in the life of the local church, that means we can't just show up and be a pew warmer on Sunday morning. Um, I think a lot of times Christians especially, I'm not talking necessarily to unbelievers here, we're talking to church church members in the life of the local church. I'm talking to Oak Grove Baptist Church. I think we, even as Christians, can come to church a lot of times and be on autopilot. We show up at 1045 or actually more like 1050, 1055. We show up, we sit in our seats and we've missed the announcements. We've missed the first song or two and we show up and it's just kind of something that we do. If we get to small group because we woke up on time, then we're really doing well, right? And that's just kind of how we tend to be after a while. And church can, we do church things, we're inside the church walls, but I want us to be careful to understand that just because we're inside the church walls doesn't mean that we're in the church doesn't necessarily even mean as Christians that we understand the truth of the gospel, that it's something that lives within us. We need to be careful about that. Um, there should be a distinction there. When, and I wrote this down, when a believer understands what it means to know Christ, to be indwelt by his spirit, to be included in his family, to be a part of the household of faith, it's clear in the way in which we live and how we are plugged into the local church. First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 10 should be on the screen. It says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's not saying once you didn't go to church and now you do go to church. He's not saying once you were irreligious and now you were religious. He's saying once you lived in darkness with no hope, lost, separated from God in sin, and now you are in his light, full of hope, a child of the, of the king, uh, living in light with something to share, the gospel. He's saying that there's more than just showing up to church on Sunday morning. Um, and the next point leads us, we go right into the next point, the God whom they now worship, who we now worship, whose household is the church, is none other than the living God. Being a part of the church means worshiping the one true God. He says in verse 15 that if he was to delay, he wanted to make sure that the church knew how one ought to behave. In this case, it's making sure that everything we do is surrendered, is surrendered to and surrounded about worshiping the one true God. Um, I was thinking about this, and I was kind of looking into a lot of different passages especially that Paul wrote because Paul's writing this to Timothy the pastor at the church of Ephesus and I you know Paul this is early on in Christianity Christianity's not really the gospel's not spread out very far and he's he's a missionary who's going all over the place sharing the gospel and he's running into religions people groups as a missionary who are worshiping false idols little g god and we obviously we worship Yahweh big g god but he's running into people that need to know the gospel and they are worshiping anything but God. He writes to the Thessalonian church, building up their, their uh, esteem and, and, and praising them for the fact that they have turned from idols. It says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. As I've said already, if we understand who God is and we have him in our lives, then our lives should be a clear distinction from what it was before, right? Um, you abandon all those idols to serve the living and true God. We must be intentional as well to not serve little g gods, but instead big g, the one and true God, right? Um, 
I think when people today talk about God, they talk about, and I'm talking about lost people now, when people talk about God, I think they talk about God in the, with this idea of a self-set, maybe a self-formed set of morals or kind of this abstract idea. They don't really understand who God is, but we should, as Christians, know who that is and should be excited about wanting to worship God as a result. Um, one thing that I wrote, I, I was kind of coming up with some examples of what idols look like in the Bible. I was thinking of, of stories like Moses who, uh, he comes down from the mountain after they've been freed from, ex- from Egypt in Exodus. They are, uh, they fleed and he's gone up to meet with God on the mountain and he comes back and Aaron, who's his brother, who's his right-hand man, uh, has constructed with the Hebrew people an idol, the golden calf, that's completely distracted them away from the God that just freed them from Egypt. Um, the shame, really, that he felt there, the disappointment, the anger that he had with his own people, right? I think of Elijah, who later was able to flip the tables on uh, idols, and he's meeting with these people who worship Baal, the false god, little g god, Baal, and he puts him to shame and humiliates him and says, you can't, you, your God means nothing. Watch what mine can do, basically. And he calls down this pillar of fire and puts him to shame and proves that he, their God means nothing and that uh, Elijah worships the one true God, right? We, I think, even though it's not maybe, maybe in these big, ornate, grandiose stories, we have these little idols in our lives, too, these little trinkets, these little um, things that we that we worship uh, even in, in the name of God. I think of like we come to church and we have ways that we do things and a lot of times we, we can get so caught up in how we have worshiped or how we have operated and we get distracted from who it is that we're worshiping in the first place. I think of the little things in our lives, our families and our schedules or um, uh, the, the, the pastimes that we enjoy that can become so important to us that we get distracted from who it is that we're worshiping maybe it keeps us from coming to church or whatever that looks like, right? We can easily be led astray and have these little idols, little G gods in our lives instead of making sure we're focused on big G God. But the thing is, the church holds God's truth in its hands. Brady does a great job of making sure that as a church, we are centered around God's word. That's what we do here. And we have the responsibility of safeguarding it, supporting it, understanding it, obeying it and living it out and that leads us to the next point which is being a part of the church means knowing the truth of the gospel verse 15 again it says if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth some translations the Greek they translate it a pillar and foundation of the truth um Paul, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read your Bible, you know that Paul was completely unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually says that. Paul was unashamed of the truth. I think today, objective truth especially, not a thing anymore, right? I have my truth. You can have your truth. He has his. She has hers. And we can all get along until you disagree with me, and then I've got to put you down and basically effectively cancel you because your truth means nothing anymore, right? Um, but the problem is that the Bible clearly says that that's not true. And I, I was doing some study, and I found these two statements that I had to write down. In fact, they're going to be on the screen because I wanted to make sure I got it right. The first one, people think something becomes true by the passion of their own belief so that it's not because it is true that they believe it, but it's because they believe it that it is true. 
That's the world we live in today. But the Bible says this, the gospel is true whether we believe it or not. It's not our believing of it that makes it true. It simply is the truth, right? If Christians are going to believe that, if they're going to live that out, then we have to understand it. We have to open our Bibles, get it off the shelf, dust, this, dust it off, and actually read it, right? We have to want to understand what it says. We have to study it, take it apart, think it out, apply it, and then more importantly, submit to it. What it says, we do it, right? Um, I, I was thinking about this idea of idols and, and stuff that, that I'm kind of taking out of this scripture and, and I was thinking about how Christians live. We can say that we believe in God. Um, we can have our little, again, trinkets, the shirts that we got from youth camp that we wear proudly or, or um, our family Bible that we have on display, um, the necklaces with crosses on them. Maybe you have the scripture on the wall or on the rug that says, it's for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? Um, the verse of the day that you post on your social media page, and everybody sees it because you at least read that verse today. Um, and we can have all those things, but if that's as far as it goes, I think we as Christians should know that that's not quite far enough, right? I wrote this down as well. If that's the case... You are being subjective based on your own belief in a God you barely know. If, you, if you're worshiping God on Sunday and that's it, you don't really know God. And if that's the case, then there's probably a truth of the gospel there that's lacking in your life. Um, it's as real to me, I think, as it should be for the rest of us. I know I don't read my Bible enough. I know I, have, I work here. I work at the seminary. I'm super busy. I have six kids. And I, I don't ever have time for myself, right? But I think sometimes we lack that, and we can have these little G gods that we can show up on our shelves and we can wear on our shirts, but if that's as far as it goes, then that's not enough. Um, Clint sang the song, the, the, the worship this morning, and I wrote it down because it was, it's so good. The words from Christ be magnified. I won't bow down to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Christ be magnified in me. Um, abandoning all idols, abandoning even the the shallow Christian life and diving in and if that happens then the cross is going to transform, transform us it's going to put us in the fire we're going to be in a world that's lost and not going to necessarily agree with the way we live but so what <laughs> uh, we'll be crucified with him as the text says there uh, there's one other thing I want to point out and then we're going to look at the six lines of the gospel um, Acts chapter 19 Luke is writing and he's talking about the church at Ephesus, actually he's talking about Ephesus as, as the town, the city, and there's a temple that had been constructed in Ephesus to little g goddess of the hunt, Artemis. And businesses had been constructed, and again, little trinkets, youth camp shirts that had been built and constructed and made for them to wear clothing and stuff in their homes. And the idea was that everything had to do with Artemis. And these businesses were making a lot of money, doing very well 
in the town's inundation and worship of Artemis. Um, Paul comes into town and he completely screws that up and Christians start to, to come to faith in Christ and church, the church at Ephesus is formed and it's bad for business. And people start to get really, really upset about it. And so I can almost imagine like in a, in a scene in a movie or a TV show, the people in the background of this scene in Ephesus, they start to get upset and they stand up, maybe they're hanging onto a light pole, right? They're like getting up as high as they can and they stand up and they scream in verse 34 of Acts 19, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they say it over and over and over, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I can't help but think that Paul, who's writing to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, going into the mystery of godliness he says this line in verse 16 great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness and I think it would be almost like an encouragement to the pastor of the church at Ephesus this is what you went up against but here's the gospel here's what your church needs to be centered around so let's look at this really quickly six lines of text he's quoting a hymn that Timothy probably would have known or at least recognized and it's the gospel in very succinct terms the first point first line he was manifested in the flesh he appeared God appeared in the flesh there was a moment in time when the son of God became what he was not which was a man without ever ceasing to be what he was God he revealed himself to us through his son Jesus it also made me think of the Trinity, the young adult small group. We did a series of uh, lessons through doctrines and theology and scripture, and one of them was the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, who are co-equal, co-eternal, perfect, power, praiseworthy, and each there since the beginning. God appeared in a body, and in his appearance there had to be a pre-existence because he came from somewhere, Right? And in his incarnation, there was a humiliation because I would imagine that God becoming one of us, that's humiliation enough. But not only that, he became a servant who went and died on a cross on our behalf. Number two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. When the men and women present nailed Jesus to the cross, they were pronouncing him as a person cursed by God, unforgivable. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. People would have looked at Jesus who was hanging on the cross and they would have said, he said he was the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah because he's clearly cursed by God. God has abandoned him. He's, he's crazy. How can he be the Messiah? Isn't he the carpenter's son anyway? Isn't he from Nazareth? We still ask these questions today though, don't we? You know, he was a teacher. Religions, other religions say, well, he was a prophet. Yeah, we can give you that. Or, or lost people who say, maybe I can grant you that Jesus lived, but you're not going to get me there. I, he's not the, he wasn't the Messiah. I'm not going to go with you on that one. But the Bible is saying that Jesus bore the curse of sin against the law, a man who lived a perfect life, died on a cross for those of us who, being sinners, would believe in him God vindicated his son in the resurrection and then he went and we'll talk about it in a minute rose to heaven and in doing so he left the spirit behind for us to live in our hearts as Christians and by doing that the spirit vindicates the son in his acts in life and ministry Romans 1 4 says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have his incarnation and we have his vindication by the Spirit. The third one, observed, he was seen by angels. This is kind of a weird one in our culture today, I think. I was trying to figure out why culture goes this way and kind of how to approach this. In Scripture, there's many times that the angels are there with Jesus. We know that the angels are there at his birth. They announce the birth to different people. We know that they are there, angels are there and present in Matthew chapter 4 when uh, Jesus is tempted by Satan. We know that in Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, um, Jesus returns to heaven and there's an angelic host, kind of like a party of welcome, who greet him there. But this line is probably talking about the resurrection. Matthew chapter 8, 28, all the Gospels have their own account of it. Matthew 28, verse 2 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And then I like this, then he sat on it. The angel would go on to tell the women who arrived to give incense and, and, and uh, just honor the king who had been buried there. Of course, that famous line, Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. So the angel there, though, what's interesting about this is that he's looking at this. He's even announcing it, but he's not participating in it. He's an angel. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he can only get so far. Um, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.12, In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These are things into which angels long to look. There's kind of this fascination with angels today, uh, has been for a long time. I'll give you another show that was on a while back, Touched by an Angel, right? This idea that angels, uh, people die and they go to heaven and they get their wings or, or whatever this fascination with angels is in culture. But one thing that we, if you want to talk to somebody about angels and you want to talk about this mystery of godliness in the gospel, one thing that you can tell them is there's something unique to mankind that angels will never have. They'll never know what it was like to be redeemed. They'll never know what it was like to be saved by Jesus. They've spent eternity with him basically but they'll never know what the unique relationship is between us and God that was broken, but Jesus fixed that and redeemed us. They'll never know what that was like. I, was, I found a story, it's a setting, it's, a, it's fictional, it's a joke really, but it's a story that, a setting that most of you have heard. Brady's used this setting before, I'm not stealing it from him, but you've heard this setting before. Two angels sitting at a heavenly gate, at the heavenly gates, right? Okay, you're already there with me. Um, Jesus has just returned to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And the angels are sitting there at the heavenly gates waiting for the first person to come to heaven. And the guy gets there and he kind of looks lowly and untoward, not really kind of fitting what the angels thought would this guy, these people, Christians, would look like when they get to heaven. So they ask him questions like, what are you doing here? And the guy's like, I don't know. <laughs> what, what are you, what are, I was going to ask you that. Uh, they ask him questions like, well, are you saved? And he says, yeah, sure. And they go through these questions interrogating, ba interrogating him, basically. And after a while, one, while the guy's standing there looking at him, one angel looks at the other and says, all right, something's off about this. Watch him. Don't let him go anywhere. I'm going to go talk to 
our supervisor, in this case Gabriel, will figure this out. He's gone for a few minutes, he comes back, and these two guys, the angel and the guy, they've been kind of staring awkwardly at each other, and it's kind of weird for a moment. And the angel gets back and he says, well, I've just gone and made a fool of myself. And uh, the, the other angel's like, why? He says, well, I told Gabriel what was going on. I told him about this guy. He's, I mean, just doesn't really look like he belongs here. And Gabriel said to let him in. So I asked him, why, why do I let him in? What makes this guy so special? Gabriel said he thought that a personal invitation from Jesus himself made a person quite special enough. Something that angels probably wouldn't actually understand, though. They've been in heaven for a long time, but Jesus is wanting us to be there, too. And that salvation that he freely offers is enough, whether we look the part or not. Angels probably just don't quite understand that. The next two lines kind of go together. Proclaimed. He was proclaimed among the nations. All over the world, the Spirit of God is moving as the truth of God is told to all who will hear. And he chooses to do this through his people. Um, in case you didn't know this, we don't exist for ourselves as Christians. Um, there's a day when missions won't be a thing anymore when missionaries won't need to be all over the world. Billy does a great job about making sure that Oak Grove stays involved in missions all over the place. But there's a day when that's not going to be necessary anymore. Um, so until then, we have the responsibility of making sure that we know the gospel so that we can, under, uh, we can share it with everyone that we come into contact with. And that goes right into the next one, affirmed. He was believed on in the world. The Bible is basically saying here that if Jesus is proclaimed, then he will be believed on. If Jesus is shared with the world, he will be believed on. I think of the gospel when it comes to um, my family, for instance. Um, my, my granddad was a pastor. My mom was one of eight kids. And just because she was the, the, the daughter of a pastor doesn't mean that she automatically becomes a Christian. There's no... There's no Christian by inheritance. There's no grandchildren Christians. Just because I'm on staff as a pastor at a church, just because Brady with his kids and all of you Christians who have family, just because you are in uh, Christian doesn't mean that your family is automatically inherited into the, the kingdom of God. Everyone has to choose for themselves, right? But if we share the gospel, then it will be believed on. We just have to trust in God to be able to do that. Then the last one as we close up, exalted. He was taken up. In glory, Though men and women had just taunted him, beaten him, spat on him, killed him, Jesus, just a few days later, rose into the sky, was taken up into glory, where the angels watched, because that's all they could do. They watched as he got into heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, where he now waits for us to be with us again. Um, there's a lot really there in six lines of text. Um, it's something that I guess if you were, I could understand if you try to say all that, that if you were talking to a, a lost non-Christian, maybe they, it would be a mystery. Uh, I don't think, as I said earlier, I don't think Christians are really going to understand it all. But I would say this, we don't have to. The power of the gospel is that when you share what you know, and you share your faith, and you share your story, and you share what you know from Scripture, God does the rest. Here's what I would say. There's, maybe there's someone in here that, here's the gospel and you need to know who Jesus is you need to have a relationship there 
Brady opens up the front, the altar here every Sunday morning to be able to pray with you, to share the gospel with you, to to, to just a- answer questions. The the staff pastors here, there'll be people to pray with. We would love for you to come and to to uh, just to be able to talk with you. Um, we also open the, the floor up for those who maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to pray with you up here, let you know that process, be able to just hear your story and to, to uh, celebrate with you as you're looking and, and possibly joining here. Uh, there's some great things happening at Oak Grove right now, and we'd love for you to be a part. Um, but I think I'm talking to this morning to us, the church, Christians who we... We've been Christians for a while. Some of you longer than I've been alive. Good for you. But we've all been, as Christians, we can get complacent. And we can, we can just kind of settle in and, and be okay with our verse of the day. And be okay with the little things. Be okay with sitting in our seats at 1045 or 1055. That's not enough. And I, I would ask that as we move into what I think is one of the most sacred parts of the service, I know what time it is, and I'm sorry, I talk more than Brady, I'm sorry. But this is probably one of the most sacred parts of the service when we respond to God's word and we say, he's saying something to, to us, and um, I would just ask that each of us have something to pray for, each of us have something to respond with. Don't, don't leave, let's pray together. Let's, let's just say that as a church, we're going to be reinvigorated, reinvested into the life of our church, reinvested into our small group, reinvested into the missions that we say that we are so heavily a part of. And let's just make it important that us as a body of believers pours into each other, pours into what it is that we do together, and just kind of let this moment settle over us as Clint comes to, to lead us in a time of response. Can we do that together? Um, let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you this morning for the opportunity to speak. Um, I, I, I trust that you will use not necessarily the most eloquent words, but the, the message that you have brought out through these three verses of text that Paul writes, that you would just use the mystery of godliness, the truth of the gospel to impress upon us whether we are lost and need to know you or whether we have been in this church for years and years and years, the truth of the gospel and the weight of it in our lives. Not just the little things, not just the being okay with reading the verse of the day, but wanting to live for you in every way and every part of our being that we surrender completely to you so that when people look at us, they see Christ magnified in and through us. We thank you for who you are and what you have done in us individually and as a church as we continue to move forward here at Oak Grove. We thank you for this time that we've had together this morning. Just ask that you would move amongst us in this time of prayer and response. We love you. We praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.